452 years ago, the 19th of June, 1566 to be precise, King James I of England, being King James VI of Scotland, was born in Edinburgh Castle, this grand old building behind me. Born to Catholic parents, Mary Queen of Scots and Henry Stuart, also referred to as Lord Darnley. But James's birth was a troubled one. By the time Mary gave birth to James, her first and only child with Henry, she had been married once before. She would marry the Prince of France when she was 16, he was 14, and within a year of her arranged marriage, he would die. Mary saw a lot of pain, a lot of misery during her short life. Her father, James V of Scotland, was a very promiscuous uh, sort of a guy. She would have half brothers and sisters as a result of her father's indiscretions. And all this needs to be said, because when we come to profiling King James I, we need to take all of these things into consideration. There's been a lot of material written about James over the years, a lot of censorious material, some good, uh, some not so good. But my purpose has been over the last four months to try and take a fresh look at James Stuart. If you think of James, you think of Mary. If you think of Mary, you think of John Knox. And we will take a little trip further down this uh, stretch in a few moments and show you the home of John Knox, the firebrand Calvinist minister. But Mary, Queen of Scots, was born in Scotland, uh, was raised in France, and as her years would progress, she would lay claim to the English throne. Her claim to the throne was via Henry's sister, whereas Elizabeth, of course, could trace it back to Henry via Edward, of course. When Mary became the Queen of Scotland, she was very young, I think six days of age. When James was crowned uh, King of Scotland, he was no more than a toddler. But as Mary would struggle during those early years, surrounded by uh, her father's indiscretions, half-brothers, half-sisters, a very dysfunctional family, and like I say, her first uh, marriage would end very abruptly. It's been said that she uh, was in a, a loveless and childless marriage. By the time she would marry Henry, Henry Stuart, she was already a widow and scarred. Scarred by her father's indiscretions, scarred by the death of her first husband. It has been said that Queen Elizabeth chose Lord Darnley to marry Mary Queen of Scots. And it's also been said that he was sent to infiltrate the House of Stuart. It's hard to prove that. It is partly fair to say that he was able to bewitch her in a roundabout way and seduce her in a roundabout way, but she loved him. Out of her three marriages, she loved Henry probably the most. This building behind me would witness the birth of King James. And yet during one dark night, Henry, James's biological father, was drunk. And he was of the opinion that Mary had been unfaithful, that James's real father was a man called David Riccio. And he was able to gather a group of clansmen and Scottish nobles. They crashed into one of the rooms behind me 
where Mary was, along with one of her female aides and Riccio, who was an Italian singer and her unofficial secretary. He was intoxicated, along with his men, a lot of arguing, a lot of shouting, and in the process, poor old Riccio was dragged from behind Mary, stabbed up to 60 times, thrown over the landing, and as you can see, it's a huge building behind me. His body crashed on the ground. One of the murderers ransacked Riccio's pockets, took what they could, and he was just left like a dead dog. Later on, Mary would order his burial at her royal chapel. For the record, Riccio was innocent. He wasn't James's biological father, Henry, also referred to as Lord Darnley was James's biological father. But this is how the devil works, you see. The devil knew that James, also meaning Jacob, and if you go back to the Old Testament, Jacob is Israel. He knew one day that James would commission the greatest book that has ever been commissioned, the King James Bible. And therefore, like Moses, like Jesus, the devil had to move. And he attempted to assassinate Mary when Henry Stewart was intoxicated during the brawl, during the fight. One of Henry's lieutenants had a gun and put it to the stomach of Mary, who around that time was seven months pregnant, and attempted to pull the trigger. And somebody pushed the gun aside, could have been an angel, and the newborn, or not quite newborn king, the soon-to-be-born king was spared. That was an attack on the life of Mary, and obviously had she died, so too would have James. The Lord stepped in, spared Mary, spared James. The Lord stepped in, Matthew chapter 2, spared Mary, spared Jesus. The similarities are tremendous. If you go back to Exodus, read about Moses, it's the same sort of thing. Pharaoh wanted to kill all of the Jewish boys, because they were growing, they were becoming more powerful, and eventually the Lord took Pharaoh and put him into the sea. But to profile James fairly and correctly, we have to understand where he came from, who he was. By the age of 18, he had witnessed directly and indirectly six deaths. And out of those six deaths, he would also witness with his own eyes his grandfather's death. Henry's father. Not long after the christening of James, along with those cruel and unfounded insinuations concerning James's illegitimacy, kings in France and Spain were also teasing James about his claim to the throne. And if you spend any time reading the scriptures, you know that the devil is a liar. He is a liar from the beginning. As a Bible believer, I can spot the fingerprints of the devil straight away. He uses saved people, he uses unsaved people. It makes no difference to him. The best of us have our weaknesses. John Knox plays a big part in the life of Mary and also the life of James. One of the books that I read suggested this, that Knox's writings poisoned the mind of young King James. Officially, John Knox was anti-Mary because she was a Catholic. When she would travel around Scotland, she would have masses said 
and quite rightly Knox saw that as a blasphemy and idolatry and he spoke against it but unofficially he was very impressed with her and they had many meetings and on one occasion they even worked together to try and keep a marriage together concerning one of Mary's relatives. Mary would be very careful, very conniving, would on the one hand work very closely with London while on the other hand work very closely with Rome. James also worked very closely with France and Spain. Like Cromwell they would play both sides of one another. But this building, this grand old building behind me saw the birth of King James I of England, King James VI of Scotland, and he was born to do great things. But like everyone born to do great things, especially uh, for someone like James, meaning Jacob, to give the green light to the commission of the King James Bible, there will be attempts on his life. Down the line, you have the gunpowder plot, and that's infamous night concerning Guy Fawkes, and we'll speak about that more later, almost resulted in the death of the king, the queen, and his many children. With the first attempt on the life of James, Mary, seven months pregnant, made a midnight dash from Edinburgh Castle, amazingly with James's father, Henry Stuart, a weak, pathetic, immature man. He was 19 when she married him. And from Edinburgh, they went to Dunbar. And of course, the purpose of that was simply to survive. Mary was seconds from death. And had she died, her son would have died and the history of the world could have been changed. Had Moses died, the history of the Jews could have been changed. Had Jesus died, the history of the entire world would have been greatly changed. But where the devil is trying to destroy the good and the great like Moses, Jesus and James, Almighty God is in the background, Romans 8:28 working all things together for good, to those that love him, to those who are the called, according to his purpose. As we profile James, we have to deal with some controversial sus uh, subjects concerning the life of Britain's Solomon. If he was saved, he had two natures. If he wasn't saved, the Lord used him nonetheless because where the word of a king is, there is power. The devil failed to destroy James directly. The devil failed to destroy Moses directly. And the devil failed to destroy Jesus directly. But tragically, he succeeded in destroying Henry, James's father, who was no more than 20 years of age when he was strangled and later blown up using dynamites and he was able to get Mary when she was around 24 years of age put under house arrest. The devil destroyed the parents of James but it made no difference. In spite of that James was raised not behind me but at Stirling Castle and we will 
speak more when we arrive at Stirling Castle. But for the first few months of James's life, he was raised at Edinburgh Castle, a very tremendous city, a very grand city on a high hill. And no matter what the devil could do or would attempt to do, Almighty God was always working in the background. When it comes to profiling James, it's very difficult to do that without profiling John Knox, because John Knox was a controversial Calvinist, referred to as a thundering Scot. He would clash with Mary, and we've already discussed Mary's Catholicism. He would quite rightly confront her, rebuke her publicly, calling her to repent. She was a Catholic from beginning to end, and yet during her detention at Bolton Castle in Yorkshire, she would experience conversations, dialogues, and enjoy sermons from leading Protestants. What's also of great interest to me is how Mary refused to allow her Scottish priests to go to the awful and infamous Council of Trent. But John Knox is a very interesting character. When he was 54, he would marry his 17-year-old wife. He had been a widow, or widower as such is referred to, and after marrying his 17-year-old wife was criticized for that. We could suggest this. We could suggest that like James, who also would be accused of much controversy down the line, Old Knox was also guilty of the old nature. But let's not lose track over the fact that people back in the 16th century and the 15th century and the 14th century leading into the 17th and 18th century married young because they died young. Mary saw death like we've already referred to by the time her father reached 30 he was dead and her first husband died around the age of 16. By the time James reached the age of 18 he had seen death six people directly and indirectly. So just before we go into Knox's almost 700-year-old property, I wanted to climb these steps in Scotland and spend a few moments enjoying the scenery and say a couple of things. Number one, Knox, like Cromwell, like Calvin and also King James, were from the Reformed persuasion, Presbyterian to be precise. They were very much like Old Testament style saints. They believed in capital punishment. They believed in intervening. They believed in violence. And Knox would call for the death of Queen Mary. Of course, for those of us which are born again, for those of us which understand the gospel of the grace of God, we don't call for the death of political leaders or uh, princes, kings or queens, we pray for such people. And this is one of the problems when it comes to trying to assess people like Cromwell, who was very involved with the death of Charles I. But Knox was also guilty, indirectly of course, uh, in calling for the death of Mary. And of course John Calvin was directly involved in the death of Michael Servetus.
Our time has come to an end in Edinburgh. It's been a great blessing to come here and film outside Edinburgh Castle, go inside the home of John Knox, a house nearly 700 years old, but this grand old building behind me is over 1,000 years old. St. Giles Cathedral, and Knox would preach from this building behind me for a period of time. Although I am no Protestant, no Calvinist, and certainly don't hold to the a reformed religion, I do appreciate men such as Knox and Cromwell and Luther to some extent who were courageous and preached against Romanism and Mohammedism and all false religions and when they preached about the blood of Christ, when they preached how a sinner is saved by their faith in Christ alone, I totally salute such people. With King James now safe at Stirling Castle, being raised by George Buchanan and other regents, Rome continued to be desperate to assist Mary in any way possible by taking the English throne. So much so that they would aid her generously with arms, men and money by covertly smuggling such into Scotland. They even sent one of James's male cousins from France to sexually and spiritually seduce Scotland's sovereign. If this failed, they would substitute such for a wealthy puppet papal stooge. From the suggestion that James was a homosexual, to being a vicious king persecuting witches, to being a Freemason, has never really gone away. And it's my belief that had James never commissioned the King James Bible, historians would have overlooked him People would have forgotten him, and the devil wouldn't have given him the time of day. But because he did commission the greatest book that has ever been commissioned, his reputation continues to be tarnished. Antonio Fraser would say the following, quote, James was not called the British Solomon in vain. His love of learning was genuine, deep-seated, and surely admirable by any standards except those of the most resolutely anti-intellectual Englishman. His contribution as a skillful and tenacious King of Scotland, in many ways the most successful King Scotland ever had, is often ignored, while the legacy of problems he inherited in England is overlooked, and I would certainly concur with that. But these pictures that you are currently looking at were filmed by yours truly during our trip to Stirling Castle and this obelisk is somewhat reminiscent to the leader and founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Taze Russell. But just for the record, King James would die in 1625. Freemasonry, as we know it today, would begin in 1717. So just less than 100 years after the death of King James, Freemasonry came into being. Pre-1717, it was unheard of pre-1717. Yes, you had stonemasons and groups within groups that would meet and retain their secrets, so on and so forth. But Freemasonry, as we know it today, like the worship of Yabulon, didn't begin until 1717. This graveyard was very eerie, and I was in two minds as to whether or not to include it in this documentary. Part of James's character at times 
does appear to have been somewhat effeminate, and I want to suggest the following. It could be that due to the stress that Mary, seven months pregnant, would experience, going back to that drunken night when Darnley or one of his cohorts put a pistol to her womb and was moments from pulling the trigger, that would have caused any woman a terrible amount of trauma. On top of that, at seven months pregnant, she would jump on a horse and travel some 29 miles to escape not only Darnley but his lieutenants. Such a trauma in the womb of an unborn child can result in all sorts of problems down the line. And I think parts of James's effeminate nature, shall we say, may be traced back to the trauma that Mary would experience pre his birth. During this time, and with just weeks before the birth of King James, Mary would approach Rome for a divorce. But of course the divorce would be unnecessary because Darnley would be executed by Mary's third husband. These are the words that came out of the mouth of Henry Darnley shortly before his death. Quote, Pity me, kinsman, for the sake of Jesus Christ, who pitied all the world. Tragically for him, his desperate pleas would fall on deaf ears. Barely 21, Scotland's scheming king was now dead. One of the main suspects behind Henry's murder was, of course, James Hepburn, Mary's third husband, also referred to as Lord Bothwell. And according to Fraser, was not only a notorious adulterer, but also a homosexual and dabbler in black magic. In fact, Bothwell would brag in his book, Confession, to successfully seducing the Queen through the dark arts. Incredibly to me was how the former papal nuncio would write to Mary, recommending that she marry the reprobate Bothwell. But Bothwell would later get his comeuppance, dying in a Danish prison, suffering with insanity. Bothwell, before marrying her, would rape Mary, and during her time, under house arrest, would later miscarry, and she would lose twins due to the miscarriage. To suggest Mary was at times bipolar, I believe is a fair diagnosis. On top of that, she would also suffer with epileptic fits. When news reached James about his mother's execution, for she would be beheaded, he was generally distraught. And just one final footnote when it comes to James. Most of the material that has been written about King James came from Catholic diplomats living in London around the time of James's time on the throne. Yes, others would write about him during his lifetime and after, but most of the material that we know and have access to would come from the pens of the French, Italian and Spanish ambassadors. As we profile King James, it's worth spending a few moments discussing, first and foremost, Robert Cecil, a great English patriot. His father was the late great William Cecil, who would serve Queen Elizabeth for 40 years. And during William Cecil at the top of the British government, serving Her Majesty the Queen, it was his responsibility to deal with the threat from Rome to repel Rome's constant attacks, sometimes inside of her kingdom, sometimes outside of her kingdom. Upon the death of William Cecil, his son, Robert Cecil, would replace him, and some have suggested 
that Robert Cecil was greater, had more of an impact, was more successful than his father. A brilliant Cambridge character who, like I say, would defend King James from enemies within his court and outside of his court. Robert Cecil, in total, would serve King James for nine years. And his responsibility, his good honour, his good privilege was to keep James safe. And when we think of King James, the chances are that we are all aware of the gunpowder plot. Remember, remember, the 5th of November. Robert Cecil was James's chief spymaster. He would be a cross between MI5, MI6, Special Branch, GCHQ. And some have suggested that with a lead up to the gunpowder plot concerning the infamous Guy Fawkes, quite possibly, according to one historian, a double agent, on the one hand, working for the Catholic Church, and on the other hand, working for Robert Cecil, and some have suggested that because Guy Fawkes may have been a double agent, that Robert Cecil was very carefully and skillfully planning and plotting the attack on King James, not to see the death of King James, but to allow such an event to go right up until the 11th hour and then notify the king that they've been able to find enemies, they were aware that a plot was hatching. And with that being made public, being made aware to the king, Robert Cecil would be able to take all credits, full credits for tipping off His Majesty the King. The hypothesis, the fascinating hypothesis that somehow Guy Fawkes was a double agent would allow Robert Cecil, the best of both worlds. On the one hand, he would appear to have saved the day, saved Great Britain, saved His Majesty the King, and on the other hand, he would be able to repel Rome and very much keep the Catholics in their place. Once this was made known to the King, Guy Fawkes would be naturally arrested, tortured, and later thrown to the wolves. Because he would recant, because he would plead for mercy from the king, because he would beg the king for clemency, the Roman Catholic Church, right up until the present, have never made Fawkes a saint. But as far as I am concerned and aware, Guy Fawkes was a Roman Catholic, would work with 30 men, would spend 10 months digging under the Houses of Commons and once the bomb had been detonated, once the House of Commons had been destroyed, once King James had been murdered, the plan had been to find any of the King's children and kidnap them and probably go on to murder them. So Fawkes was a terrorist. He was a Roman Catholic terrorist backed by the Jesuits. Cecil was able to infiltrate Guy Fawkes' cell 
a bit like the security services over the years have been able to infiltrate IRA cells and therefore Cecil would quite rightly and understandably take all of the credit. One of the writers that I spent the last seven months reading does believe that King James wasn't aware that Guy Fawkes was a double agent, wasn't part of this plot to, if you will, take all of the credits, and was very much in some ways the victim of Cecil's plotting and planning. It may be unfair to suggest such concerning Cecil, but if you spent any time researching espionage, the spy world, the dark world, spycraft, you know that spy chiefs from any country, from any generation, are quite capable of doing anything. Another writer that I've been reading would say the following, quote, Fawkes had confessed that there was no cause moving him or them, but merely an only religion, namely his Roman Catholic faith. What did it mean, asked James, that Christian men, at least so-called English-born within this country, should practice the destruction of their king, his posterity, their country, and all? James further, and wisely went on to say that not all professing that Romanish religion were guilty of the same. Very reminiscent to the Islamist insurgency that we have been witnessing in the UK over the past decade or so. British-born Muslims wanting to rise up and do their jihad and as a result overthrow their queen, their sovereign. King James, I would suggest, was clearly asking what many people today are asking, going back to the Islamist problem, and of course the contrast would be that Fawkes was a Catholic doing his Catholic Jihad, whereas the Islamists are doing their Islamic Jihad. Such then and such now are traitors, and therefore I would suggest this should be stripped of their citizenship. The writer also goes on to say the following, quote, On the other hand, it is true that no other sect of heretics, not excepting Turk, Jew, nor Pagan, no, not even those of Calicut, who adore the devil, did ever maintain by their grounds of their religion that it was lawful, or rather, morotorous, as the Roman Catholics call it, to murder princes or people for quarrel of religion. To stamp out the Catholic insurgency, it was decided that Catholics especially should sign up for the Oath of Allegiance. And some Catholics would be happy to do so, like in Ireland during the reign of Oliver Cromwell. Those Catholics, lay or clergy that refused an Oath of Allegiance, were banished from the UK. But we go back to the suggestion, the hypothesis, that somehow Fawkes had been a double agent and on the one hand was serving his masters in Rome, was obviously caught and was turned 
as they call it, and was now serving Cecil, and of course vicariously the state, you see how brilliant Cecil was at infiltrating this terrorist cell. To repel that, like I say, an oath of allegiance was called for, and that allowed the state to weed out those that were true to the country, contrast that to those that were not. Never forget that what took place from the 15th, 16th and 17th century and beyond in the UK was taking place in Europe. If you think of Pope Clement, he was kidnapped by the Spanish Emperor during the time of King Henry VIII, was held prisoner by the Emperor, Spanish Emperor, a Spanish Catholic Emperor, and the Pope Clement, uh, to be precise, Clement was able to escape and find sanctuary outside of the Emperor's grip. So, on the one hand, the Protestants were doing what they needed to do concerning enemies of the state and go to Europe. You had Catholic against Catholic. The Spanish Emperor, like I say, would arrest Clement, hold him against his will until one day Clement was able to disguise himself and disappear, vanish. But this audacious plan concerning Fawkes, like I say, would last 10 months. And during 10 months, they were digging underground like the Palestinians do, trying to bow their way into Israel. And therefore, the plan had been to kill the king, like I say, blow up parliament, kidnap any remaining members of his majesty's family. Princess Elizabeth, named after her majesty, Elizabeth I, was very much scarred by the entire ordeal and was terrified for months afterward. James was in fact convinced that they had wanted to totally destroy him, the Church of England and the Commons. One very touching letter from Elizabeth to her father after she was married would read as following, quote, I shall perhaps never see again the flower of princes, the king of fathers, the best and most admirable father that the son will ever see. I wanted to read that because if you listen to historians, most of which are unsaved, they will suggest that James was a neglectful father, was more preoccupied, more focused on hunting and enjoying his homosexual liaisons. And yet this very touching letter almost reminiscent to Cromwell's daughter, Elizabeth, who would write to him, I think quite accurately shows the love between daughter and father. It goes on to say the following, quote, Your Majesty can never efface from the memory of her who awaits in this place a favourable wind. So, as far as I'm concerned, James, far from perfect, was a good father, was a good husband, and here, Elizabeth, who like I say, was scared and scarred with the threat, the gunpowder plot, which almost succeeded. And upon marrying her husband, would write a very touching letter to His Majesty the King. The gunpowder plots would be the third and probably the most brazen attack on the life of King James. Satan, from the beginning of James's life, right up until his death in 1625, was attempting to annihilate the king. The main threat, of course, was popery. The main 
disease was Catholicism. And that's why King James would employ Robert Cecil, much like Queen Elizabeth would employ William Cecil to push back popery and to liberate Great Britain from the clutches of the whore Rome. Another very interesting letter, this time from King James, will say the following, quote, I have dispatches from Rome informing me that the Pope intends to excommunicate me. The Catholics threaten to dethrone me and to take my life unless I grant them liberty of conscience. Of course, had you lived in Rome around the same time, like the Anabaptists, you would have been given no liberty of conscience. I shall most certainly be obliged to stain my hands with their blood, though surely against my will. But they shall not think that they can frighten me, for they shall taste of the agony first. I do not know upon what they found this cursed doctrine, that they pertain to plots against the life of princes. Again, very reminiscent to the Islamists, the jihadists, torn as to their final authority very much unsure themselves as to whether or not to submit to the powers that be, going back to Romans 13, or submit to Allah, Muhammad, and of course Mecca. Sometimes I am amazed that when I see the princes of Christendom are so blinded that they do not perceive the great injury inflicted on them by so false a doctrine. It was always the prerogative, it was always the desire, the plan for the Catholic Church to conquer the world. Before Augustine would arrive in Britain, around the 5th century, there were Christians and Augustine would annihilate them. Augustine made it very clear that if they didn't bow the knee to the Pope, that he would kill such people. And many refused to, to bow the knee and as a result were put to death. Fast forward to the Reformation when King Henry would free Britain from the clutches of Romanism, it was very much a throwback to the 4th and 5th century. So on the one hand, James shouldn't have been shocked, surprised that Rome were directly and indirectly attempting to overthrow him. This has always been, and this has been the long-held policy doctrine of the Catholic Church to do just that. Paul V incredibly issued an edict asserting that English Catholics could not take the oath with safety of their salvation. In other words, had they taken this oath of allegiance, they would lose their salvation and go to hell forever. Of course, for the Catholic Church, then and now, they have no assurance of salvation. But this goes back to the power, the authority that the papacy then and now has over their people. Romans 13 makes it very clear that for the true Christian, whether he or she is living, whenever the generation makes no difference, that they are to submit to the powers that be. Of course, when the state clashes with the scripture, Acts chapter 5, you go with the scripture. But when the state and scripture come together, when the state and scripture are in harmony, 
you stay with the states, you submit to the states. On top of that, you pray for the state. For me to try and get into the minds of people like Guy Fawkes is impossible. He was an Englishman, born in England, would enjoy the fruits of England, and yet would turn against England, would turn against the king, and as a result would be put to death. Such absurdity and Catholic nonsense concerning this hold over Catholics would infuriate Protestant reformers, so much so that they put pen to paper and attempt to free people from the yoke, the bondage of Roman Catholicism. And on top of that, to threaten everlasting, eternal damnation to an already ignorant and illiterate, superstitious Catholic people living around the time of King James is not only shameful, but completely and totally blasphemous. So again, you see what King James was up against. Pushing back Rome, trying to free his people from the hold that they had over him, trying to bring his people together, and he would be successful. He would unite Britain, Scotland, England, Ireland, and of course Wales. But these quotes show in some ways James's almost desperation, a bit like Winston Churchill's letters during World War II concerning the Germans are at uh, our door, if you will. They're not far. I think Calais was around 30 miles away and therefore Churchill was looking for help and James was looking for help and that help, of course, would come from Almighty God. This arch near St. Paul's Cathedral is one of the very few that exist in the UK and on the front of the arch is King Charles I and King Charles II, King James' son and grandson, both closet Catholics and both failures when it came to being monarchs. At the back of this unusual arch is Anne, also referred to as Anna of Denmark, and of course King James. After the death of James's mother, and during a 15-day prayer-slash-fast, James would make his sole overseas trip to Denmark, where he would meet and marry his cousin, the 14-year-old Anne of Denmark. James was 23. They were blessed to have had nine children. Two would die in miscarriages, and only three would survive to adulthood. Intriguingly, James had once been lined up to marry the Pope's niece. James was a loving and caring father. The bright and doting couple were both bilingual and enjoyed conversing in Latin and French in the moments leading up to their rapid wedding. It has been suggested by some that James subconsciously undermarried Anne, much like his parents had done. But James and Anne's marriage just seemed to have been a happy and authentic one. During their honeymoon, however, James unfortunately required a taste for alcohol. Once married and en route back to Scotland, they would sail in a 13-strong ship formation. Anna would receive a Sunday anointing as Scotland's queen, something certain clerics didn't wish to do, being the Lord's Day. This Protestant coronation would last seven hours, in which Anna took an oath to God and country. And yet, to this day, speculation continues as to whether or not Anne was a closet Catholic. 
much like her son, Charles I, and her grandson, Charles II. James and others believed how a pack of witches had plotted with their evil spells to thwart Anne's ship's arrival and eliminate the king too. When it came to the commissioning of the King James Bible, the translators were split 60-40. 60% were Calvinist, 40% were Arminian. And here's a very interesting quote from King James concerning predestination and his revulsion for such a belief. Quote, This doctrine is so horrible that I am persuaded if there were a council of unclean assembled spirits assembled in hell and their prince of devil were to put the question either to all of them in general or to each in particular to learn their opinion about the most likely means of stirring up the hatred of men against God their maker nothing could be invented by them that would be more efficacious for this purpose or that could put a greater affront upon God's love for mankind than that detestable formulary by which the far greater parts of the human race are condemned to hell, for no other reason than the mere will of God, without any regard to sin, the necessity of sinning, as well as that of being damned, being fastened on them by that great nail of the decree before mentioned. And that quote goes some way in explaining as to why certain Calvinists and others detest James and the King James Bible. As we travelled around the UK filming this documentary concerning King James, I thought it would be worth driving to York, a beautiful city on the west coast of England, and film this very ostentatious statue of Constantine, because I believe it is worth comparing people like James with Constantine. Just for the record, Constantine would rule in total around 24 years, whereas King James would rule for 22 years. Constantine was 65 when he died, whereas King James was 58. The sons of Constantine would naturally replace him, and one by one kill each other. The sons of King James would also replace him, and one by one would fall foul. They would never live up to their father's legacy. King James was a small man, a man of average heights of around five foot five, whereas his mother was five eleven, and his father was over six foot. When Constantine died, his beloved bodyguards and spearmen would throw themselves on the ground, tearing their garments and beating their heads while screaming at the top of their lungs. Very much an overreaction, similar to apostate Jews that would die in both testaments. Constantine the Great would refer to himself as the Bishop of Bishops, and also as the Archbishop. Of course, such a title concerning Archbishop is never found once in the New Testament. King James, on the other hand, would say the following, quote, I am neither a god nor an angel, but a man like any other. When King James died, yes, it was major news, and yes, people were mourning the loss of their monarch, but nowhere near the scale that Constantine's men would publicly demonstrate. When Constantine died, his corpse would be deposited in a gold coffin and then placed between 12 coffins representing the 12 apostles, obviously making Constantine the 13th apostle. 
which from the book of Acts would be Matthias. When King James would die in 1625, he would find himself buried in Westminster Abbey, and we will discuss more of that later on. And one final character, which I think is worth speaking about, would be King Herod from Acts chapter 12, and verses 21, 22, 23, make the case that on one occasion, the people, when they saw King Herod, said, it is the voice of a god and not of a man, which of course would be the complete opposite to what King James would say. And verse 23, and immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. So Constantine thought he was a deity. King Herod thought he was deity. King James did not think he was deity. During one winter period, King James spent the entire winter reading and researching Revelation in preparation for a public five-hour debate with a Jesuit priest. And according to those that were present, King James won the debate. King James wiped the floor with that Jesuit priest. And of course, the Jesuits have long memories. Not only would the Catholic Church later excommunicate King James they'd also go on to ban some of his books but if you think of President Lincoln when he was a lawyer representing the Catholic priest Charles Chinnicky would win that court case and you can research that for more information and at the end of that public court case Chinnicky said to Lincoln that the Jesuits would come after him how they had long memories and fast forward some years President Lincoln would be assassinated by John Wilkes Booth, a Roman Catholic. And therefore the Jesuits waited to kill Lincoln. And it's my belief how the Jesuits have been able to continually assassinate the character of King James. And it's also worth stating how some of James's books were banned by the Catholic Church. And yet Das Kapital has never been banned. Mein Kampf has never been banned, and the origin of the species has also never been banned. And you ask yourself, why would that be? Well, quite simply, King James, like the King James Bible, continues to be a real threat to Catholicism. And therefore, Rome would excommunicate James and also attack the King James Bible because they knew that such a book would and could transform the lives of many people and also when it comes to the King James Bible when James gave the green light for the commissioning of the King James Bible he made it very clear that there would be no footnotes no footnotes in the King James Bible unlike the Geneva Bible because he didn't like the idea of footnotes going back to what was found in the Geneva Bible from Exodus chapter 1 how the midwives disobeyed Pharaoh concerning his desire to see the newborn Jewish boys killed, put into the sea, drowned, and he thought that people should obey the monarch at all costs. That, of course, goes back to James's fallen nature. But because he was the king of England, the king of Scotland, the king of the entire nation, his orders, his wishes concerning no footnotes being presented in the King James Bible would stand. And also another error concerning James would be the inclusion of the Apocrypha. 
But the Bible, the actual King James Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament remains faultless, flawless. And that's why Rome continues to attack it. And that's why people continue to ridicule it. Because they know that the entire word of God, the perfect word of God, is what saves people's souls. And James knew that. The King James translators knew it. And of course, the devil certainly knew it. But we have to remind ourselves that for King James, his time as king over England started off somewhat uh, precarious because Elizabeth I, who had reigned for 44 years, was a very popular monarch. And when James first arrived from north of the border, some of his English subjects were a little bit uh, unhappy with him. Perhaps we could say snobbish. Because, of course, James had been born at Edinburgh Castle back in 1566. One of the fascinating subjects and parts of the Tudor and uh, Stuart dynasty would have to be the Spanish Armada. And during the height of Elizabeth's time at the top of the realm, Spain wanted to invade England. There was a power rush. People wanted to reconquer Britain for the Catholic Church and I think it was King Philip ordered 10,000 men 10,000 Spaniards with hundreds of ships and they set sail from Spain they had the Pope's blessing and from Spain to Britain they hit some choppy waters and many ships were sunk but it's interesting because the Spanish Armada was mobilized of course, all this predates King James, but I think it's worth mentioning this uh, if you are a history aficionado like I am. And Queen Elizabeth put the call out. People were running around, all hands to the pumps, a bit like Dunkirk, 1940. Prisoners were released from jails. Boats were sent to defend Britain. And Drake, Sir Francis Drake, a great hero, was part of the team. Uh, that was able to save Britain. 1603, Elizabeth dies, and upon her death, James, of course, is crowned king. Within a year of arriving at Hampton Court Palace, he would call all of the senior bishops together, and the plan was quite simply to give the Word of God to the entire world, the perfect Word of God to the entire world, and all the bishops, like I say, would be summoned to Hampton Court Palace. And from 1604 right up until 1611, the King James Bible was being worked on. They were split up into groups in Cambridge, Oxford and Westminster. Like I say, King James was a genius. Spoke four or five languages. During meal times, his aides, his lieutenants, would stand around the dinner table and as the king was eating his meal, he would turn around and say, what about Ephesians 1.5? What about Romans 8.3? What does Matthew 16.2 say in the Greek? How about Hebrews 3.4? Or Genesis, I should say, Genesis 3.4. How does it read in the Hebrew? And these aides would be back and forth with James, commenting, offering their thoughts. Debates would take place, like I say, he would debate two Jesuits, wipe the floor with both of them and of course when you take on the Jesuits you take on a huge massive enemy as James got older 
uh, Anne, his wife, and himself became somewhat estranged, somewhat separated. They had several children. It's my belief that Anne of Denmark, as she was known, never really got over the death of Henry, their firstborn child. And that goes back to that salacious uh, slur concerning the illegitimacy of King James. People were making the case that James's father wasn't Henry Stuart, but Riccio, I don't believe that. Had that been the case, why would James have named his firstborn after Henry, his father? But like all good men born to be great, he would know that the enemy would seek to attack him directly and indirectly. There were many attacks made on his life, and of course James was able to push back all of his enemies. When it comes to witchcraft, yes, it's true that he had an interest in witchcraft, but let me say this, if he didn't have an interest in witchcraft, and when I say an interest, I mean to stand against it, we would suggest he was negligent. If you are a sovereign, if you are a monarch, and you have no interest when it comes to the occult, I mean, speaking against it, something is wrong. And therefore James, yes, would speak against witches. But when it comes to the continual suggestion that King James was a homosexual, the more I think about it, the more I try and analyze such a statement in light of scripture, the more I am convinced that such a statement is incorrect. You have to understand a, a few things. First and foremost, back in the day, if you were a queen like Elizabeth or a king like James, you had favorites. Elizabeth had favorites. Her favorites were females, mainly single women. She had some married women, even Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine, she had favourites as well. It doesn't mean that there was any kind of sexual involvement. It was purely platonic. The same, I believe, is, is true of King James. He had favourites, mainly male favourites. Some were family, some were married, some were single. Unfortunately for historians, most of which are unsaved, they look at King James and they don't give him the benefits of the doubt. They paint him in a very negative light and they make the case that he was a prolific homosexual. I don't believe so. He was scarred, and I've already said this, he was scarred. The devil destroyed his mother. By 24, she was in jail and she would remain there up until her death at the age of 44. His father, Henry, a very promiscuous, hot-headed, alcoholic, would fall foul of Mary, would attempt to murder Mary, would attempt to indirectly murder young James. By the time James was a year old, father's dead, mother is under house arrest, and by the age of 18, he would witness six deaths, including his biological grandfather. His kingdom was a precarious one. Unlike Elizabeth, south of the border, he was very much in need of her help, not just financial help, but diplomatic help. He would play Rome off London. He would keep Rome guessing for as long as he could as to whether or not he would convert to Catholicism. But let's just return, if we may, to what I think was probably the beginning of the end for Anne, James's wife. Henry, the Prince of Wales, and like I say, named after his grandfather, was a very bright boy, a greatly beloved boy. 
And he, of course, was in the line of succession to replace James, much like Charles is currently in line to replace Elizabeth II. Well, Henry became sick, and he would die very young, and as a result, his mother never got over that. During the end of her life, she was practically blind. She was not only incapacitated, but didn't want to see James. Tragically, around the same time, King James, like Oliver Cromwell, was sick with internal problems, and they had to carry King James to visit his dying wife. I believe it's absolutely fair to say that King James loved his wife, and his wife loved him. To suggest he was effeminate is possible, but to go beyond that and to suggest that he was a prolific, radical, homosexual, I think is too much. James was very much a family man, and during the time of Charles I, trying to find a wife, trying to forge diplomatic links between uh, Britain and uh, the Catholic continent, he went to Spain with one of James's favorites, and again, the term favorite means a close aide a trusted confidant. If you've studied politics, you know that prime ministers, presidents have an inner cabinet, people they can rely on, people they can consult. And during the 16th century, Charles I would go to Europe. He would take one of James's favorites, a very trusted aide, in search of a bride. And parts of the negotiations around that trip would be for Charles to convert to Catholicism. That was a final straw for King James, and he wrote to Charles I, and his favorite, like I say, and almost begged both to return to the UK. In fact, in his letter, which you can read in Antonia Fraser's book, he says, Daddy misses you. And in the letter, he speaks very affectionately to his biological son, Charles I, and also his favorite or one of his favorites. If we look at King David very briefly, we discover very easily that he was close to Jonathan, but also it's worth reminding ourselves that Jonathan was his brother-in-law. At the same time, David married Jonathan's sister. And on top of that, King Saul was their father. And the scripture says how David would refer to Saul as my father, and it speaks about David's love for Jonathan succeeding that between a man and a woman. And most reprobates today will take such a verse from the Old Testament and use that to suggest that David was a radical homosexual. I greatly resent that. I don't believe that was the case at all. I will say this, that David and Jonathan were blood brothers, really close, really tight, the kind of love that Jesus and John would enjoy from the New Testament. What took place here in 1604 was, of course, the commission of the King James Bible, the perfect, the infallible, the eternal Word of God that the entire world would benefit from. Had King James been destroyed back in 1566 by his drunken father, I think it's absolutely fair to say that the King James Bible would never have been commissioned. Because again, where the word of a king is, there is power. And King James 
by the grace of God, was able to see Rome down, was able to see enemies from within his kingdom and outside of his kingdom because he knew that the weights of the world, the authority from heaven, was on his shoulders to commission the King James Bible. Very much like Winston Churchill. Churchill, over a 20-year period, up in years, 60s, always believed that he was primed for great things. And of course, 1939, Hitler, a Catholic, is invading Europe. Queen Elizabeth is having to deal with Dominicans, Catholics in Europe. And the Lord stepped in, blessed Churchill, blessed Britain, stepped in, blessed Elizabeth, blessed Britain, stepped in, protected King James from all the enemies internally and externally because of the King James Bible. Not because of those people, but in spite of those people. Because it's about a nation, being Britain, being an English-speaking nation, and it's about a book coming from such a place which continues to transform the entire world. If you are looking for perfection in anyone outside of Jesus Christ, you will never find it. It's been a great privilege for me to study King James, to look at his family life, to read the letters that he would pen to his children, to his wife, very reminiscent of Cromwell's letters to his family. Yes, Cromwell had his faults. Yes, James had his faults. Yes, David had his faults. Yes, Solomon had his faults. But that shows the grace of God, that he will use sinners. He will use sometimes unsaved people, sometimes saved people. But ultimately, he will, he will take dead men and make them alive. And he would do so for his own glory. Well, our time at Hampton Court Palace has come to an end. A very, very impressive building. But just spend a few moments thinking about all the famous people that have been in and out of that very impressive building behind me. Henry VIII, his wives, Edward, Bloody Mary, Oliver Cromwell, King Charles I, King Charles II, but for the purpose of this project, King James of England and Scotland. So much history from the British Isles, and like I say, because of that, Almighty God waited and waited and waited until a child was born. When the Prince of Scotland was born, he received a commission by the Prince of all princes, by the king of all kings, to put the King James Bible into play. And I'll just jump at a camera shot to allow you to enjoy this very, very impressive building, like I say, and it wouldn't just be members of the royal, uh, royal family going in and out of the entrance, but prime ministers, foreign leaders, VIPs, all sorts of people, but from our perspective, it's not about Prince James. It's about the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. But just before we leave this very ostentatious palace, which of course would predate the building of Buckingham Palace, 
It was of interest to learn how King James, in his early twenties, was seriously considering marrying Queen Elizabeth, who was over thirty years his senior. And James proposed to Elizabeth via one of his archbishops. He was so desirous to rule and reign at the UK that he seriously considered marrying the Virgin Queen. And all this took place during Mary's final year under house arrest for treason. She would be 44 when she was executed. And Elizabeth, around a decade older than Mary, had the opportunity to marry King James. Of course, it never happened. But it fascinates me when I try to profile and get into the mind of King James, who was always destined to rule and reign Great Britain, how he was prepared to marry a woman much older than he was. Yes, his cousin, which wasn't unusual for the Dark Ages. In fact, Charles Darwin would also marry his cousin, Emma. But of course, such a union never took place and Elizabeth would remain the Virgin Queen right up until her death whereas King James would go on to marry Anne of Denmark and have several children with her. Yes, very impressive like Hampton Court Palace. It's always fascinating to me when we research the monarchy and modern democracy and how they all come together. Of course, today's system is very different to that was during the days of King James. Today, the Prime Minister is very much at the head of the government, with the Queen as a token head. But go back to the 15th, 16th and 17th century, the monarchy, the monarch, was very much in the driving seat. Like a lot of people from the 15th century onwards, illnesses would be a problem some historians have suggested that King James was slowly being poisoned by one of his lovers, one of his favourites. I personally don't believe that. I think he was just an unwell man. It's a very stressful job being head of state in any country during any generation. I think it's more likely that towards the end of James's life, illnesses were continuing to plague him much like Oliver Cromwell, and as a result, his immune system started to, to, uh, to break down. So much so that he was incapable of running the shop, if you will. And with the death of Henry, his beloved son, and with the death of Anne, his beloved wife, it was too much for him. So slowly but surely, King James's life started to come to an end. But like all men, whether saved or unsaved, famous or infamous, this is what you have to expect when it comes to trying to appraise truth from fact, fiction from non-fiction. As far as I'm concerned, James was a sick man, had been for most of his life. In fact, he couldn't even walk properly up until the age of around six due to his mother's midnight dash from Edinburgh Castle to Dunbar. One well, news broke on the 27th of March, 1625, that King James, known fondly as Britain Solomon, had died. He was 58 years old. His work was done. He would have the most difficult starts to life, and we spent considerable time discussing his early years, 
but a boy born to dysfunctional parents lost both his parents would be raised by regents in Edinburgh would be schooled under the excellent uh, tutor George Buchanan would finally arrive in England 1603 and like I say the following year the King James Bible was commissioned and seven years later the King James Bible was finished and to the left of me is the very famous Westminster Abbey to my shock and almost sadness I hadn't appreciated that for 200 years historians had no idea where King James was buried until around the time that the Oliver Cromwell statue interesting enough would be erected 1899 and one of the people that put the statue up in commemoration for Oliver Cromwell would be Sigmund Freud he was very fond of Oliver Cromwell but around that time 1899 historians finally revealed the final burial place of King James and yes it is of course Westminster Abbey but what really shocked me was up until recently up until the presence if you were to go into the Abbey behind me there are no plaques there are no statues no monuments there's a tiny inscription which tells you how King James now lies in peace and fascinating to me he is buried with of all people King Henry the seventh not King Henry the eighth not King Henry the sixth but King Henry the seventh and had there been a plaque had there been a monument had there been a thank you your majesty for the King James Bible commemorational statue or a plaque or anything to show Britain's thanks to like I say Britain Solomon I would have gone inside and taken some pictures to show you all but unfortunately there's not much to see in Westminster Abbey behind me and if you are able to find where Henry VII is buried you'd have to look very carefully to read the inscription it's almost like in brackets and by the way King James VI of Scotland and King James I of England lies here and I think that's a great travesty and I would like to think in time to come the powers that be may address this and put a monument up doesn't have to be too ostentatious a lot of vain statues all around here remembering some pretty awful infamous people and yes I must say some wonderful people very brave people but I'd like something that'd be my plea to the powers that be that if it's possible could we have something in Westminster Abbey to give you the date born 1566 died 1625 age 58 and thanks to his majesty King James we would receive like I say the infallible the eternal the wonderful King James Bible shortly before the death of King James his close friend Lancelot Andrews 
one of the senior members of the King James Translation Committee, was very ill. And these two would work very closely together. As James was dying, he would take communion and say the following quote, There is no other belief, no other hope, as it is practiced in the English church, I ever approve it, but in the dark way of the Church of Rome, I do defy it. And we hope, with such a wonderful statement, that what he said he meant, and he meant what he said. And I can say one other thing, in addition to that, that James was defiant and anti-Rome, right up until the end of his days. And we hope that he put his absolute and unequivocal faith and trust in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. With the death of King James, his son, Charles, around the time was 24 years of age, would naturally succeed him. James, in total, would reign 22 years. And like I say, in the footsteps of Elizabeth, it was a tall order. We've already spoken about Buckingham, one of James's personal aides and favourites. And like I say, he was also later blamed for multiple deaths and eventually would find himself being murdered and he was stabbed to death by a discharged officer named John Felton. So you get the picture time after time how dysfunctional, how disruptive the House of Stuart was and yet like I say I think in spite of everything, in spite of James's very difficult upbringing and his flawed parents and people inside of his courts and outside of his court, jockeying for positions, waiting and uh, biding their time by the grace of God. The Lord would preserve King James right up until his death, like I say, in 1625. This glorious river to the left of me, and the camera just pan around one more time, is the River Thames. And during the days of King Henry and Queen Elizabeth, and certainly King James, they would use this beautiful river to get around London. And you can picture some of the barges from the 15th, 16th, 17th, and possibly up to the 18th century with Queen Victoria. You get some idea as to how beautiful and huge this part of London is. So thank you for joining me, looking at King James. It's been a very interesting project. We've been able to soak up the atmosphere from Scotland to England, but I wanted to come down to the River Thames this evening and capture this beautiful river with the sun going down and one more time pay homage to King James. King James of England, King James of Scotland. And may the Lord bless you all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.